come again from the in-person service at Guilt Park, which was amazing. Quite uh, lots of people there, people I haven't seen for ages. Uh, I would so encourage you to get along. The social distancing obviously has um, uh, legislation has been removed now. We're still being very cautious, but there is space for you. And and if you haven't been to one of them, now's the time. Um, well, we're going to open the scriptures together now. And so if you've got your Bible with you, either in the original book version or on your phone or whatever, now's the moment to find it. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, just to explain again, we're doing a series at the moment called Becoming, looking at the early life of King David. And, and what we discovered last week is that he was about 15 years old when he was selected to be the next king of Israel. And then he was about 30 when he became king. And so he lives this uh, season of transition and turbulence for about 15 years. And we're just like, gosh, we're in a season of transition and turbulence right now. And so surely there's something in there for us, which there is. And we're reading today a story that even if you've never picked up a Bible before, and even if you've never set foot in a church before, then this story or bits of it may be familiar to you because it's the uh, story of David and Goliath. And I've called this talk something like Conquering Life's Giants. Conquering Life's Giants. So here you go. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 says this. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokoh in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sokoh and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites, reass uh, uh, Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew, out, uh, drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was six cubits and a span. And it, just if you've got a, a real paper version of the Bible there. There might be a little A. There is a little A in my Bible. You follow the little A down to the bottom. It says he was nine foot nine inches tall or about three meters. So he's massive. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing about nine stone. On, on his legs, were, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed over a stone. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So this is not good. They're terrified, all of them, including the king. And then um, no suitable opponent for Goliath is found. And so eventually uh, David comes along. He's bringing a pat lunch to his brothers who are on the front line. And he ends up saying, no, well, if no one else is going to do it, I'll do it. And he steps up. And then we're just going to fast forward for the sake of time to verse 45. David said to the Philistine, 
You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That's nice, isn't it? That very day, I will... This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. That's God's word to us today. Um, One of the most powerful leadership lessons I ever learned, I learned when I was 16 years old. Uh, I was part of an amazing youth group led by these visionary, uh, passionate youth leaders. And they, they were trying to create an environment that wasn't just about doing things to young people. It was like trying to, trying to empower us to take our own steps in God together. And, and so um, they, they, they delegated all of their authority and responsibility out to us. And they set us up in loads of little groups. And, and we were leaders of those groups. And so I, I had my little group that I was leading. And it was a Bible study. And the idea was that you'd play some silly games. And then you'd open the Bible. And you'd study it together. And then you'd pray together. And you'd be brutally honest. But the problem was my group was an absolute disaster from the start. Because like we could do the banter and the fun and the, the, the games and stuff. But I, n- I could never persuade the guys to open the Bible. And, and um, they were just, you know, they were throwing popcorn at each other. And, and there were practical jokes. And it, I, I was just so demoralized. You know, it was like week after week after week, we never got to the Bible. And so I went to go and see my youth leader. And I said to him, hey, listen, I think you've given me the worst teenagers who have ever been collected into a group on the face of the earth. And it's not fair. And he was like, well, why don't you just tell them to behave themselves and knock it off? And I was like, oh. And then I realized I couldn't. There was something in me. I couldn't bring myself to say anything that would make me unpopular. And so I said that to him. And he said, hey, listen, the issue is not that you've had collected for you the worst teenagers on the face of the earth. That's not what's happened here. They're very nice young people. But he said, you have an issue in your life. You, You have within your own soul a deep longing to be liked. And there's something going on within your own uh, mind and your own heart that is like so insecure that you just can't do anything that would cause you to be unpopular. And if you don't deal with that, then that's going to follow you around your whole life. And he was absolutely right. The truth is that we all have giants in our lives. You know, as we look at the landscape of our lives, each one of us could identify a bunch of battles that we're facing right now or that we've been facing for years. You know, they might be situational giants. Um, Perhaps you're struggling with huge levels of debt that just seem impossible to conquer. Or you've got a dissertation that you've got to write for your university course. Or, you know, there's something going on in your life. You, you, You need to get a job. You've got a situational giant in your life. Or maybe you've got a behavioral giant 
You know, I, why do I keep doing that? I don't want to do that anymore, but I just can't seem to break the habit. Or maybe you've got relational giants in your life, you know, the kind of giants where it's like uh, your marriage is in a really tight spot right now. And it feels like, gosh, is this marriage ever going to be repaired? Or there's a breakdown in relationship at your workplace or in your family or whatever, a, a close friend. And it just feels like a giant in your life that is unbeatable. Or maybe it's just a personal giant. I say just a personal giant, you know, a, an inner monologue and the inner critic that just will never leave or, or, the, uh, or anxiety or pride or ambition that just won't go away. We all face giants in our lives as we look at the landscape of our lives. And at face value, this passage, this story gives us enormous comfort because it seems to follow the, the narrative arc of Loads of different Hollywood films, doesn't it? It's kind of like, you know, oh, you chose to pick on the wrong little guy, you know? And you can just imagine David kind of making his way towards the battle line, like, well, you may have picked on all those little guys, but you picked on me, and I've got the resources that you don't know about, and I'm, I'll be able to defeat you with my sling or whatever. And, and I think if I'm honest, that's how I've read this passage, that, that somehow this passage is really saying, you've got this. You know, like, um, oh, uh, 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 you've got the resources. You can defeat your giants if you only know how. And so often um, some of the lessons that I've drawn from this passage that aren't necessarily wrong, but they're not as right as they could be, are things like, if you want to conquer the giants in your life, then you need to refuse to listen to your critics and people who are speaking neg negatively towards you, because that's what happens to David with his brothers. Or if you want to conquer the giants in your life, you need to refuse to wear other people's armor. Or if you want to conquer the giants in your life, then you need to do things your way and not just have to use you know, Saul's sword, as it were. And you know what? I'm sure there is truth in all of those things. But my suspicion is that that's not a very mature reading of this text. Because if you actually self-consciously look at the kind of method that you've used to interpret the passage to go along that uh, trajectory, then what I've actually done is I've said, oh, look, there's somebody in this passage who's really, really handsome and really, really wise and really, really resourceful and he's godly and he's intelligent and he's articulate and he's the hero of the story and he's ever so victorious and so therefore that has to be me. <laughs> you know, it's an act actually of fairly extreme narcissism to go, oh, look, there's the, you know, that's a really good guy there. That, that must be me. But actually, if we were to take our own name out of the hero box in this story and we were to put another name in there, then the, uh, this passage kind of unlocks before us. And the name I wanted to put in its place, instead of putting my name as David, is Jesus. What if Jesus is the conquering champion in our lives? Um. You know, actually, the more I look at it, the more I think I'm sure that's what we're supposed to do with this story. The Lord, uh, you know, sees the people who are, you know, actually, who are we in this story? We're the Israelites cowering on the hill in fear. You know, we're the ones who are absolutely dominated by our giants and, and powerless to defeat them. And, and so the Lord raises up a new champion from Bethlehem. 
And he comes in, and he's from a very humble background, but he is a really good shepherd. And um, this young man is consumed with the glory and the reputation of the Lord. And he's determined that something, anything that he does will result in the lifting of disgrace and shame from the people of God. And he's a man who's judged and humiliated and unrecognized by his brothers. And yet he strikes down his opponent without a sword in his hand. And he makes a public spectacle of the enemy. And it says in verse 46, the whole, so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel that the Lord saves and that the battle belongs to the Lord. And so he steps forward by himself as a representative of the people. And he, he takes this solitary walk towards the battlefield. And so without lifting a finger, the whole of the people get to benefit from his victory. This is about Jesus. It seems to me that this well-known and probably over-familiar passage is in fact an immensely powerful picture of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus and its impact in our lives. And so therefore, what do we learn from this passage? The first thing that we learn is that our enemy is really strong and overpowering. I watched, um, I watched a TED talk on YouTube on, on this story by Malcolm Gladwell. And he said, do you know what's actually happening in this story is that even though Goliath seems to be strong, actually he's not as strong as anyone thinks he is. And, and he, what he could see in this passage that I'm not sure is there is, oh, actually his eyesight isn't very good. And he... Um, uh, his mobility isn't great and, he, you know, all of that kind of stuff. He's not really as strong as you think he is. To take that kind of interpretation of this passage, I think, is to miss the plain and obvious meaning of this passage, which is he's nine foot nine tall. He, you know, he's carrying armor that weighs nine stone and his, uh, the, the thing on the end of his spear weighs over a stone, weighs 15 pounds. Like, he's just massive. He's a giant. He's overpowering. He's undefeatable. That's the point. You might say, I don't understand why I can't stop this habit that's in my life. I don't understand why, even though I try so hard to defeat the giants in my life, somehow circumstances seem to get the better of me. Why is that? It's a bit like saying, well, I don't understand why every time I sit down at the chessboard, I don't win. And the answer is because there's somebody who's sitting on the other side of the chessboard who's much better at chess than you are. You know, and, and he can manipulate all of the different aspects of our lives and all of our relationships and all of our resources and all of our circumstances. He can manipulate all of those things so that we live constantly in defeat. We are overpowered by our enemy. It's just the truth. The second thing that we can learn from this passage is we have chosen the wrong king. You know, in verse 8, Goliath is taunting the Israelites and he's saying, choose a man and send him to me. But the truth is, the man was already chosen. He'd al they had already chosen a king and his name was Saul. And if we were to flip forward in the Bible, uh, flip back the way, nine chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we'd see this moment where the people of God are saying, yeah, um, 
we want a king just like all the other nations have kings. And God's saying, no, 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 you've got a king. Your king is the Lord. And they're like, yeah, kind of, but actually what we want is a king just like all the others. And Samuel says, this is going to end in tears because you're going to be led by someone who's just as broken as you are. They, they're determined. And so they end up selecting this guy, Saul, who is handsome, and it says he's a head taller than everyone else. So he is a king just like all the other kings. And where is Saul now? How, how uh, effective is this king? Well, Saul is there cowering in his tent just like all the other Israelites. He's dangerously powerless to defeat the giants. And for me, that's a picture of our own idolatry, the idolatry of our hearts that elevates in our lives things that are powerless actually to help us. You know, we might say, I'm going to build my life on my career or on my family or on my leisure activities. You know, I'm going to center my life around things that really matter to me and, and seem to have an attraction of their own. And the problem is that that's fine until you want to defeat a giant because those things have no power to defeat giants. We've chosen the wrong king. And so the giants will never fall. Number three, we can't defeat the giants by ourselves. What's clear from this text is that you could have sat there for a hundred years waiting for the Israelites to overpower the Philistines. It was never going to happen. They were powerless. The Philistines are camped on one hill, the Israelites on the other. Goliath is standing as tall as ever and he's humiliating them and there was nothing that they could do about it. And actually that's a situation that happens again and again and again throughout Scripture. God's people are powerless over their enemies. That's what happens, for example, in the story of the Exodus, isn't it? There they are, numerous but weak. And they're being held captive by the Egyptians who uh, hold them in slavery and who are commanding them to make increasing number of bricks with decreasing amounts of resources. They're powerless. There was nothing that they could do about it. And we have to be so careful that we, uh, that, uh, you know, what is our understanding of what Jesus does for us? Does Jesus come and just make us slightly stronger or slightly wiser or slightly more resilient? Like, is the gospel kind of, we're fine, but we just need polishing up a bit? No, it isn't. The gospel is we need to be rescued. We are weak and powerless, and we need a rescuer, which is why the last point is so fantastic and glorious, and it's this, number four, but the Lord has given us a victorious, conquering champion. Even before this battle was on the horizon, the Lord knew that Goliath was coming. And so that's why we've already seen it in the previous chapter. The Lord has already selected and raised up his own champion and anointed him for this purpose. He's a king who wasn't in the least intimidated by the hairiest or scariest of giants. He's able to defeat every single one of the opposition in the blink of an eye. Nothing's too hard for him. No battle too fierce. No enemy too tall. Friends, that is the gospel, and that is great news. Verse 46, there is a God in Israel. Um, the Lord saves. The battle belongs to the Lord. We have to be so careful to understand what is our salvation 
to use a technical word, what is the nature of our atonement? Because often we can see uh, becoming a Christian as, oh, this is really wonderful. I've got a free ticket to heaven when I die. And of course, I mean, that's true. Um, And then we could say, no, 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 but but it's more than that. And it is more than that. There's also a substitution that happens. You know, So, so my sin is given to Jesus. My shame, my brokenness is given to him. And he imparts to me his righteousness. And so there is a kind of a divine transaction. There's a a spiritual settling of accounts. My debt is paid, which is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But again, if I was to stop there, then once my debt's paid, I've got to defeat my own giants. But I want to suggest that the story of the whole of Scripture is that what is actually happening in this book is that God sees the suffering and the captivity and the oppression of his people, and they are powerless to defeat their oppressors. And so God bears his mighty right arm, and he reaches into our situation, and he raises up a champion, a conqueror, who will defeat all of the powers of darkness that we are utterly unable to conquer and to place us in a land of absolute freedom. And that's what you see throughout the pages of Scripture. It's what you see happening in the Exodus event. It's, it's what you see happening in this moment right here. It's what you see um, prophetically look forward to in the prophets. It's what you see sung about again and again in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms, are, I got, just reading through the Psalms at the moment, it's all, Lord, I am powerless, I'm surrounded, rescue me. And ultimately, when Jesus comes, how does he understand his own ministry? What, what is he here to do? He, he says in Luke chapter 4, he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. That's the gospel. Not just that we have our debt paid, but we're freed from our oppression. Our giants are defeated. And so very quickly, how would I respond to that truth? Three quick things. The first thing is, I need to make Jesus the hero of my life, the hero of my own story. Maybe you've lived your whole life as the hero in your own story, trying to battle and defeat those giants when they've come along. But actually the truth is, that the best thing we can ever do is to admit defeat. To say, Jesus, I'm powerless to defeat these giants. I'm powerless to come out from under the oppression that I'm under. Jesus, please, will you be my champion? And we're just going to make an opportunity in the moment. If you've never done that before, if you've never become a Christian, if you've never waved the white flag of surrender and said, I'm done, Jesus, please, will you battle on my behalf? We're going to make an opportunity for you in a moment. Secondly, I'm going to offer Jesus my giants. It's absolutely pointless to have a champion in your corner and then to go into the ring yourself. If you've got a champion, you want to use him. And so, uh, therefore, we're just going to take a moment in a sec to just bring our giants before the Lord and say, Lord, these are the things that we're battling with right now. Please, will you defeat them on our behalf? And then the last thing is, I'm going to sing in gratitude. You know, if we were to just 
flick forward just a few verses, what we see happening at the start of chapter 18 is that all the blokes are coming back from the battle lines. And as they're coming, what are they do, they just can't help themselves. They're just singing in celebration. They're saying, Saul, oh, that's so last year. David, he can kill any enemy. He, you know, and, and they're just singing, it says, with timbrels and lyres, whatever they are. And so in a moment, you know, maybe just in, uh, maybe for the rest of the day, you might just want to sing and celebrate that Jesus is your champion. That would be a great response. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are our conquering champion. You're the overcomer. You're the strong one. And we confess that we are weak and powerless and that we have giants in our land. And so just where we are right now, we just bring to mind the giants that exist for us. Personal giants, situational giants, behavioral giants, relational giants. We just bring them to you. And just wherever you are right now, just, just call those to mind and just offer them to Jesus. Jesus, please, will you defeat those things? Would you be the strong one? And like I said, we just want to make an opportunity for you. If you've never become a Christian before, which is ultimately an act of surrender, then we're going to make an opportunity for you right now. And so I'm just going to say a prayer one line at a time. And if you would like to respond, then you just say the prayer either out loud, wherever you are, or, or just quietly in your own heart. And Jesus will hear every word and take you at your word. Let's pray. Jesus, I surrender. I recognize that I've lived my whole life trying to be the hero in my own story. I really want that to change. I'm sorry I haven't lived my life with you or for you. Jesus, would you be the hero in my story? Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross in my place. Thank you for going alone to the battlefield of Gethsemane and Golgotha. Thank you for defeating the enemies on my behalf. I pray, Jesus, that you would Forgive my every sin and shame. And fill me with your spirit. Help me to live my life with you and for you from now on. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer and you're watching live with us, either on YouTube or on Facebook, then just put a little comment in saying, I just prayed that prayer. We'd love you to do that. We'd love to just know. And also, you can go to the website. There's a particular section called New to Faith. You can click on there. There's loads of resources to help you in your journey of following Jesus. 
Anyway, Libby. Delapo. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much, Chuck. Yeah. That was so, so powerful. And